Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is episode 14 of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. I'm Brian Beasley. With me is Dan Alberth. Good morning, Dan. Good morning. And joining us for the first time, our partner, Tom Stesich. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, guys. How's it going? About time you made it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we are on Tom's suggestion. We're we're talking about a topic that uh, you know we we've talked about sometimes internally, and it's uh, how, how human beings are wired differently, and how we're all susceptible to making errors in judgment. All of us, and we have different biases that come from things that are not immediately obvious. And Tom suggested that we discuss a book that he that was one of his favorites called Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. It's a 2008 book, and uh, we'll get started a little bit with an introduction here from the book. Within the domain of science, assumptions about our ability for perfect reasoning have found their way into economics. In economics, this very basic idea called rationality provides the foundation for economic theories, predictions, and recommendations. Many of us hold about human nature the simple and compelling idea that we are capable of making the right decisions for ourselves. This leads me to the real rub between conventional economics and behavioral economics. In conventional economics, the assumption that we are all rational implies that in everyday life, we compute the value of all options we face, then follow the best possible action. What if we make a mistake and do something irrational? Here, too, traditional economics has an answer. Quote, market forces will sweep down on us and swiftly set us back on the path of righteousness and rationality. So what he's saying here is all theory of economics, all theory of finance traditionally says that we all do the right thing. We all calculate things very scientifically. And in real life, that's just not the case. Yeah, I think anyone who agreed that most decisions are not based on thinking things out. It's more of a lot of it's got feelings. And you see that in practice, too. People don't always make rational decisions based on all the information. Mostly they don't make rational decisions, and that's kind of our human nature. And that's what the book goes through and kind of dives into. So in his first chapter, he's talking about this concept called relativity. I'll get back into the text. We don't have an internal value meter that tells us how much things are worth. Rather, we focus on the relative advantage of one thing over another and estimate the value accordingly. Most people don't know what they want unless they see it in context. We are always looking at things around us in relation to others. People tend to focus on comparing things that are easily comparable and avoid comparing things that cannot be compared easily. Right. So we're all, I, so a lot of this breaks down to is is utility, which is the the economic term, is whenever you're spending money or doing an activity, you're trying to get the most amount of happiness, the most amount of happiness. So what we're what it's saying is we don't actually know what's making us happy. We're just comparing different things to see which one will make us the happiest. And are we actually good at doing that? Um, and I think the answer is probably no. Well, we see it all the time in our, in our business where people will, this, he's talking here about how people will tend to focus on things that are easy to compare and they'll avoid things that are hard to compare. And we run into this all the time where people are focused on comparing, they, they'll compare past performance right. of investments, for example. It's readily available. It's fairly easy to understand. 
the actual perspective of how that's even relevant to the future is lost on most people. Past performance is not an indication or guarantee of future results. It says it on every piece of paper you find from any financial institution. But people focus on expenses. Easy to see, easy to understand. They'll look at taxes. That's pretty easy. What's harder to compare and sometimes more valuable is probabilities. Mm-hmm. It's harder to find. It's harder to calculate. What's the risk I'm taking of making this decision over that other decision? What risk? What's the risk of me being disabled or my house burning down or that I die prematurely? We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Correlation between things is a tough one and people avoid that concept because it's just fuzzy and it's difficult or and the one we run into as, as planners is you don't always get to put all your resources in every single thing you have a pri- you have to prioritize right because you can't afford to do it all and you i also see it people want to talk about stock a versus stock b because comparing two stocks is very easy to do so this did this this other stock did that that's easily comparable because they're mm-hmm. similar it's you're buying a company where it's much harder to compare buying a bond versus stock because they're they have different risk profiles, they're different investments. It's it's harder to do. So you have a lot of people they become infatuated with just picking one or two stocks and comparing those things. That's one way you do it. And then I like the example in the book is just even comparing trips, cars, anything. It's just based on what similar items are to each other. Yeah. And not necessarily taking effect which one will make you happier, which is the best amount of happiness for the amount of money you're spending. And I guess the thing to keep in mind is that how how easily people as groups can be manipulated in their decision making process. He talks about this idea of a decoy effect. Yeah. Where, you know, and this is this is right from the book, an option that pushes us toward an option that does not provide the option we would benefit from the most. But in comparison to the other options, makes it appear to be the best. The, the example that came to mind for me is I, I just read an article of like a year ago about um, uh, Wendy's. Wendy's has a Baconator. They came out with the Baconator burger. It's just loaded with bacon. And then they had a double Baconator. And what they found is, according to this article, they were selling a lot of singles. They weren't selling any doubles. And they thought, you know, there's more profit in the double if we can get people to do this. So you know what they came out with? They came out with the triple Baconator. And so customers would come in there and they're thinking, Baconator sounds pretty good. I'm going to get a Baconator. But you know what? I don't want to be a pig and get the triple Baconator. So I'll get a double. I'll split I'll split the difference. This, the single might be too small. I'm really hungry. I don't want to go with the triple, but I'll go in the middle. I'll get a double. And sure enough, they sold the double Baconator. So the triples don't get sold that much, but they sold a lot more doubles as a result. And that's the decoy effect that's that's here. Yeah. So as in marketing, and we see this in, in marketing all over the place, messages can manipulate behavior. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what this book is talks about is that, is how you can be manipulated. You just want to be aware of the language and the choices that are, that are given to you. And if you're talking to a financial professional, you want to make sure that they're not playing some marketing game with you. Yeah. And you want to make sure you're optimizing your decisions and you're not that undue influence by this false, false sense of choice when there actually isn't a choice. You're being driven to something. In the book, they talk about, I think it was The Economist, a newspaper. There was one option. It was like $75 for the newspaper. 
$150 for the online and newspaper. And it was online only. Yeah, and online only for $150. So it was obvious you were like, oh, I'll choose the online and print because it's the best deal because I'm getting, obviously I'm getting a better deal because it's cheaper than just the online version. So the first, the first, the first choice choice was just the plain newspaper was one price. Mm -hmm. The second choice was online only. Yep. For like 150 for, for double for whatever, whatever whatever price. And then the same for online was the same price as, and then you got both for the same price as if you paid for the island. So really, you're right. They're yeah, really pushing you towards and you this idea of, yeah, but I get both for, yeah, I get a little something extra there. Yeah. Okay. He talks back in the book here, he says, this relativity idea of comparing can also make us downright miserable. Comparing of salaries with those around you can make you unhappy with the previous salary that you were happy with. Relativity can drive us to spend more than we have, be less happy than we should be. Controlling how much we spend can be as easy as setting a budget before shopping for an item and only looking at items that are within the budget. Within our social circles, develop relationships with people who are of the same social and economic strata and have similar values of saving and overspending. If you can afford to buy the expensive watch, don't because it may lead to living a lifestyle that comes with the expensive watch, the expensive car, the expensive house, the club, etc., Dan, we talked about this when we were discussing Stop Acting Rich from Dr. Tom Stanley. If you buy the expensive house in the expensive neighborhood in a luxurious part of town, just because you can afford the house doesn't mean... A lot of people discount the fact that it doesn't... It's not just the house you're buying. You're buying the lifestyle to match everyone around you. And it comes with private schools travel travel sports with all the extra coaching and things that goes along with that the landscaping the furnishings the next thing you know you're spending way way more than you thought you were and this is this book's just confirming that same same idea yeah um I, in my personal life i always say can i afford this i can afford this but do i want to afford this because when you buy something that's pricey say it's extra hundred thousand dollars on a house that's six hundred dollars for the rest of for 30 years for about a hundred thousand dollars, $600 monthly mortgage payment every month for the 30 years. Right. Do you want to afford that extra hundred thousand dollars for the bigger house? How much happier are you going to be with living in an extra hundred thousand dollar house? And then how happy you're going to be with all those additional expenses that come with that, that you were talking about. Right. It's a small decision escalates. Yeah. And at some point you're going to want to get a new roof, a new appliance. I mean, this is basic stuff you get, but you're going to need, um, you might want to remodel the kitchen. You might might want to remodel the bathroom. Well, with $600 a month for eternity, you'd have a budget for all that to improve the house you buy. Otherwise, you're paying not only the extra $100,000 plus all the debt if you're mortgaging it, but you're also going to have to spend out of other resources for all those things that, listen, everybody talks about, everybody we talk about too, has some sort of a home improvement goal. Yeah. And the other thing it is that six hundred dollars is also it's an opportunity cost, which a little wonky, but it's the money you could be spending that on, which is a big factor because an extra six hundred dollars a month is several nice vacations. That's saving for a college tuition for your kids. Yeah, that's a nice car payment. That's that's, that's with everything. I mean, we, everything is a trade off. In our family, last year we had to buy everybody needed new cell phones. 
and we had a conversation. We looked over all the different options that were available. And, you know, we could have gotten all new top of the line, whatever phones from whomever, but we did the math on it. It was like, wait a second, for the price of one of those phones, even the deal where they give you the phone quote for free and then they finance it out over two and a half years, the top of the line phone is still going to cost some ridiculous amount of money, like $1,500 or something because your bill gets higher along the way. And for the cost of one of those, we were able to buy four phones that are unlocked, ready to go. They're ours. They're paid for. And our bill stayed the same. And the way I would talk to the family about it, it's like, listen, these phones are adequate. They can do everything we want to do, the ones we ended up with. But the money we saved, we probably saved like three or $4,000 over the course of a couple of years. And for phones. We, we had that conversation. We said, listen, kids, what do you want? Do you want the top of the line phone or do you want to have that money available for other cool stuff? And they chose the cool stuff. I mean, I, I, I twisted their arm. But. <laughs> and then what comes with buying the big phone, the big, nice $1,500 phone, isn't just that one $1,500 phone. It's within one year or two years, you don't have the best phone anymore. And you're the person that always has the best phone. So you're almost obligated to go buy the next best phone. I've caught myself doing this. A new iPhone comes out. Well, there's a new iPhone out. I need the new iPhone. I have to have the best camera. I don't Mm -hmm. even take pictures on my phone. But I'm now living that life of a person that has the best phone. A tech person, I need to have the best tech gear. Because that's it almost becomes part of your identity when you make a decision like that. And that's dangerous. That's it's, that and that's that really is the dangerous part. It's like I'm the person that lives in that hoity toity neighborhood. I'm the person that always has the best phone. I'm always the smartest person in the room. I'm always the, the person with the nicest car and the newest whatever. The coolest watch, the best clothes, the nicest shoes, whatever. If that's part of who you think you are, unless you have an incredibly high income to sustain that and save for your future, you got a problem there. You're, you're stacking the deck against you. And that's not what you want from a financial standpoint. And even if you do have incredibly high incomes, it can become a problem. We see a lot of celebrities who go bankrupt because they ever increasing need to spend money mm-hmm. to keep up and roll. They sp- you can go bankrupt even if you're very wealthy. Yeah. Tom Stanley's research from the, the stop acting rich book that we covered he was citing, and this is this is a fairly old book as well. It was like 2009 or 10 when that book came out. If you look at the Rolls-Royce sales, something like two-thirds of Rolls-Royce sales in America were from the celebrity demographic group, even though they make up like four-tenths of 1% of all millionaires. But they, they buy two-thirds of the... And it's because the, the lifestyle almost obligates people to conspicuously spend. Yeah, later in the book, he talks about a person who was a tech tech wizard, very wealthy. And all of his friends were tech guys making millions of dollars. And they were all buying Ferraris, Lamborghinis. And he looked at it and he said, okay, I'm buying a Prius. Because he didn't want to be in the lifestyle of buying Porsches and Lamborghinis. Because next thing he knew, his buddies didn't have one Porsche that wasn't good enough. They had two Porsches, then three Porsches, and then another Ferrari. And then my buddy got a new Ferrari, but I'm the guy that has the best car. I need to buy a new one. It can... And then you go from... Snowball effect. Sports car to supercar to hypercar. 
yeah. next thing you know, you're spending a million dollars on a car. Yeah, there's always another step drive. up. And it's a car you can't even drive on the road at a certain point. Yeah. It's just a complete <laughs> ego thing. Yeah, so you, I think it's one of those things that you have when you're making decision as a controllable. Is this is this actually a rational decision? Why am I buying this? Am I going to actually be any happier with it? How much happier are you from buying, say, a $300 phone to a $1,500 phone? Is there any actual increase of happiness? The slight social bump you get from having the coolest phone for a month? Is it worth... Maybe it is worth it to you. That, you know, it could be the case. But for most people, it's probably not worth it. I can tell you, I, don't, I can't tell much of a difference in the photographs that we have stored from three years ago versus the ones we have now. No, no one can. It's, it doesn't. They're good pictures. <laughs> You're not a photographer. They're, they're, yeah, they're, they're good enough. Back to the book. Now he's starting to talk about a chapter there here called The Fallacy of Supply and Demand. Conrad Lawrence discovered that goslings, upon breaking out of their eggs, become attached to the first moving object they account, encounter. Not only do goslings make that initial decision based on what's available in their environment, but they stick with that decision once it's been made. This natural phenomenon is called imprinting. The question posed here is, is the human brain then wired like that of a gosling? Do our first impressions and decisions become imprinted? When we encounter a new product, do we accept the first price that comes before our eyes? Does that price, which in the academic lingo we call an anchor, have a long-term effect on our willingness to pay for the product from then on? In financial planning and investment management, we do see this all the time. People will focus on that first impression of the first 6 to 12 months of returns on their investment. You hire, you hire a new investment strategy. You hire a new investment advisor of some kind. You're always trying to say, I want to see how it goes. We talked about the see how it goes people a while in another episode. The returns of those first 6 to 12 months are kind of a roll of the dice based on what's going to happen in the market. And yet people will try to use that data and they'll still fixate it on it anyway. They'll stay with somebody if they had a good experience the first year that they're with them. They'll stay with that person for a lifetime. And that's why we see a lot of the top producing advisors in financial advice. A lot of them started their careers in 1982. It was the bottom of everything. That Nothing could go wrong for a long period of time after that. It made it easy for them. But you don't see a lot of people who are top in the industry who started their careers in 2007 or 1999. People fixate. There's this idea here he talks about, back to the book, this idea of arbitrary coherence. The basic idea of arbitrary coherence is this. Although initial prices are arbitrary, once the prices are established in our minds, they will shape not only the present price, but also future prices. This makes them coherent. They make sense to us from that point forward. It's a narrative you're telling yourself, a story about the price. Which is interesting. So much of our life is based on creating a narrative from random events. It's one of the things. And then I want to touch back just a little bit back here is that imprinting is not only our, you know, we think of ourselves as rational beings, but a lot of our decision making is lizard brain. It is our caveman brain, hunter gatherer brain. It's we make decisions that may have benefited us when we're in the Sahara or, you know, the great fields when we were leaving leaving the trees and going in the plains hunting those things still affect us those are major drivers of how we make decisions because 
kind of, you know, comparing and is this good versus that was really effective then. Fight or flight. Yeah, all of these things. All of those first, those basic human natural reactions don't necessarily work now. (laughs) They will lead you to make poor decisions because you're using this part of your brain that's not rational. It's your gut. And the markets and the economy is a is a rational you might not be acting rational but and you might not even know it right you might not even realize you're being irrational you might think that you're being rational oh yeah completely not he talks about these experiments in here where he was able to demonstrate that they'd have people write the last two digits of their social security number right before bidding on items that you don't necessarily know the price like the price is right what do you think that's worth Mm mm-hmm and the participants, they bid more for the more, they always bid more for the more valuable items. So it didn't completely rack them, but the amounts they bid changed based on the last two digits of their social security number. Cause they had, they wrote it down beforehand and that number was in their head and they didn't even realize it, but they'd been affected. Yeah. That's bizarre. How many decisions are you making that are based on some previous thing that's just sitting in the back of your brain? Sitting in the doula oblongata, you know, that, <laughs> that's driving all of these things that you're the front part of your brain saying you're making a rational decision. How much are you influenced by the subconscious and this caveman part of your brain that's maybe making you make completely wrong decisions? And then you, not only do you make these wrong decisions, but then you think they're correct, that you think they're rational, that you think they're well thought out. And you continue to tell yourself a story that continues to lead you down making bad decisions or irrational decisions because you have cohesion uh, because you're you're telling yourself a story right. that every decision you've made based on that original decision is the correct decision. It's it can lead you down making a lifetime of choices based on the original decision, which he goes later in the book that are completely wrong. Which <laughs> he talks I about love. this. He continues on here. He goes, price tags by themselves are not necessarily the anchors, but they become the anchors when we contemplate buying a product or service at that particular price. That's when the imprint is set. There was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Simonson and George Lowenstein, for example, they found that people who moved to a new city generally remain anchored to the prices they paid for housing in the former city. I can tell you for a fact, I've got family that lives in Colorado and Colorado has become a destination for people who are leaving California. People in California typically have very, very expensive housing costs. And whenever they move somewhere else that's less expensive, they continually overbid for the houses they're buying in, say, Denver or Colorado Springs. It, and what's happened over a period of years is it's now more expensive to live in Colorado and Denver than in Chicago, where, where we are. And it used to be almost half. And what's happened is people show up and they go, oh my, they'll, they'll look at a $250,000 house that was built 40 years ago. And they'll go, Holy cow, $700,000? What a steal. This is great. And they'll, they'll, they'll have a bidding war of all these Californians trying to buy property that's worth two fifty, dollars and they're paying seven fifty, dollars and thinking they're getting a bargain because they're anchored to the idea that in, in Orange County or 
San Jose, that'd be a million and a half dollar house. You're just anchored to that. Yeah. I noticed this in my personal life. I'm looking for a new house right now. I currently live in a um, desirable area of downtown Chicago. And I'm looking to leave the state, kind of move next door to Northwest Indiana. Significant price differences. So I'm looking to spend about the same. I was looking at houses that are about the same price I paid for my 800 square foot condo. Or a little bit more, because one of the things we'll learn later is you never quite, you don't want to move laterally. You always kind of want to move up. Right. You want to level up and feel like you're winning. So I was looking at houses, a little bit more expensive. Um, so I'm looking at houses that were not 800 square feet and nicely appointed. I was now looking at houses that were 3,200 square feet near Lake Michigan because I'm moving to a different state that has different taxes, different house prices. Am I, and I'm thinking to myself, this is actually yelling in Dan's office about it. (laughs) Uh, am I making a rational decision here or am I just buying going to buy a house for X amount of dollars just because, because that's yeah. what I spend on houses. I'm comfortable paying this mortgage. Obviously I need that price house somewhere else. Do I? I'm looking at a house for 3,200 square feet. I'm a single guy. I don't really even want 3,200 <laughs> square feet. That's a lot of cleaning. <laughs> so is it even rational to do that? Probably not. And then the other question is if I decide to spend a house that's less, this is this is a little bit later, we're kind of jumping ahead, but I think it's a good good point to talk about it. If you spend less on a house, do you feel good about yourself? So if I were to go and buy an 800 square foot house, even say 1200 because that's probably more reasonable, for half of what my condo is worth downtown Chicago, well, I feel worse about myself because I've leveled down. I'm now less of a wealthy person because I don't own a expensive home. I've got a more reasonable priced home. Now I can't brag to people about it. Like, oh, look at my house. I've spent this amount of money on this really nice place. It's still probably nicer than the house I live in Chicago, but it's not as expensive. So now I haven't leveled up. And it's, that, it's not rational, but it's a factor. And it's a factor that people don't even take into account, which it's, I find amazing. Well, that's the reason we're here today is because there's all this little stuff that can be happening in the background. And, and, and you, when you were relating the story to me, you were saying, had you not been reading this book, you would have been thinking, you wouldn't even have had that thought. Oh, right. Yeah. I would have definitely bought the, the house that's like a block away from the lake that's in my price range that's way too big for me. And just so I could have leveled up and told myself this narrative that this is how much prices are for houses because I want to justify that first price, right? I want to justify spending a lot of money on an 800 square foot condo in downtown Chicago. That was a rational decision, Mm -hmm. which I've (laughs) probably wasn't. Um, That was a rational decision. So every house I bought after that, if I hadn't read this, I would have thought, you know, oh, I need to get this house because I'm telling myself a story. Right. That everything I did was I made the correct decisions. I can just hear the theme song from the Jeffersons in the background. <laughs> We're moving up. We're moving yeah. on up. And, and and people do have that pull. They want to feel like they're improving along the way. And for a lot of people, the price of their home is that that benchmark. Yeah, and their car. And their car. And it's just so interesting that you could almost have a better house, a better structure 
a better lot, a better lifestyle, a better everything, moving from the city to somewhere outside the city, you can have all the better improvement stuff and still do it at a lower cost. That's just a mind scramble for a lot of folks. That's that anchoring thing kicking in. Yeah. And it doesn't, it's very hard to get over. Even though I've, I know I'm making, I could be making a rational decision. It's very hard to go look at a house that's half the price of your house or a car. It's very hard for people to go to a car that's less expensive than the car they previously bought. Not many people ever do that. You have? I've done it. Was it hard? I did not like it. <laughs> I know. It's when you went from I liked the, the other car better, but it was less reliable. That was the problem. Yeah. You had that fun little car. I had a fun little car, and it was uh, it made it to two months before the warranty expired, and there was a big, fat powertrain surprise. <laughs> and that's not the reliability that I wanted for that for that price. So I got something else that has been very reliable and was a lot less expensive. But it was a hard decision. I did not enjoy the decision. Yeah, it's painful. I was angry. I'm still angry sometimes, <laughs> especially when I hit the accelerator pedal. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very different experience. Yeah, and that lot, some of that's your lizard brain saying, feeling like you've leveled down or something. You know, yeah. you don't have as much prestige, which is interesting that we're worried about ego. It's ego. A lot of it's ego. And you know, along those lines, he talks about in the book this idea of hurting, and we talked about with the dot com bubble in our previous episode, episode thirteen, that there's this hurting mentality that goes on. Is and he says it happens when we assume that something is good or bad based on the other people's previous behaviors and our own actions follow suit. There's also self hurting. So this happens when we believe something is good or bad on the basis of our own previous behavior. We want to line up behind ourselves in subsequent experiences. This kind of goes along with the housing thing we were talking about, but could it be that the lives we have so carefully crafted are largely just a product of arbitrary coherence we're just stepping in line following the herd following our previous decisions we're on a we're on a path that we turned left once upon a time 15 years ago and now we're still on that path and we never looked up to look around and see if we were even in the right place or not um you know is it could it be we've made an arbitrary some arbitrary decision in the past and we built our entire life on it ever since assuming that the original decisions were wise is that how we chose our careers our spouses, the clothing we wear, and the way we style our hair. Boy, I tell you what, you see anchoring on the hairstyles for sure. Were they the smart decisions in the first place, or were they partially random first imprints that have run wild? But suppose we are nothing more than the sum of our first naive random behaviors. What then? And I, I made mention of this, but when we see bubbles develop in the investment world, it's, it's a herd mentality. It's the herding thing for sure. It's the fear of missing out, the fear of watching your neighbor get ahead of you. And this happened in the late 90s. We're seeing it happen live, in our, at least in the Facebook groups that we are involved with, with the, the younger beginner investors. They see bad behavior getting rewarded. And then that lizard brain completely takes over. Rationality is out the door. Because they're seeing they're seeing the bad behavior. Somebody's oh somebody bought something that's ridiculously priced, completely overvalued, and they're absolutely have every probability that it's not going to end well for them. 
hey, sign me up for more because I have a fear of missing out compared to my friends over here for the last month or two. They've been getting rewarded. Look, it's, quote, doing so well. I want to get me some of that. If I buy it now, I'll get the same thing they got from three months ago. They just draw a line and extrapolate, and they assume that you get this herd mentality, even if they know it's foolish. Like, you can actually have them. Do you realize that this is probably a really bad decision? And they always rationalize it. Yeah, I know it's I know it's stupid, but I just want to be along for this ride. I mean, it's doing so well. We're very good at fooling ourselves into thinking we're rational. Yeah. It, the book doesn't use the stock market, but it talks about lining up for a restaurant. So what is the most desirable restaurant to go to? It's the one with a long line. Out front waiting. It must be good because there's lots of people in line. And everybody else must have made kind of a good decision because they're they're in line. There's a wait. These people must know what's going on. Same thing is what you're talking about. The person, somebody buys the stock, they do well, they're in line. Then the next person goes, oh, that must be good. They And then there's, as stock price is going up, it's more people buying it. There's a high demand to buy it than people wanting to sell it. We've actually so seen that pattern up. with our family. We've seen that pattern with our family. When we go to restaurants, we'll walk in and and get in line or go somewhere. And usually within 15, 30 minutes, all of a sudden there's two, then there's three, and it accelerates. And all of a sudden, sometimes there is a really long line. And I've seen that happen for real. Yeah, and what is what is a rising stock price is people lining up to buy. You have more buyers for a certain price than sellers. So it drives the price up and that's a line. It's based, it's queued up. You're going to queue to buy the stock. There's a feeling of fun. There's a feeling of excitement. Hey, I'm at this place where everybody was there type of thing. It gets more exciting when everybody's doing the same thing. Dana likened it to, at least with like stock market valuations, he likened it to uh, the tower of the game Jenga. It gets more exciting when the tower gets tall. It gets more fun. It just does. You know, you see people pulling that, that it's, it's teetering and somebody pulls it off and gets that piece out without it falling and they get their piece on top and it, it just gets more dramatic and there's some fun element to that. I can see how people go down that road, but man, with big decisions, you got to watch out for that. It's not necessarily a good deal. So how do we combat that? Back to the book. You might begin by questioning that habit. How did it begin? Second, ask yourself what amount of pleasure you will get out of it. Is the pleasure as much as you thought you would get? You should train yourself to question your repeated behaviors. We should also pay particular attention to the first decision we make in what's going to be a long stream of decisions about clothing, food, etc. It might seem to us that this is just one decision without large consequences, but in fact, the power of the first decision can have such a long-lasting effect that it will percolate into our future decisions for years to come. The first decision is crucial, and we should give it an appropriate amount of attention. Even if they were once completely reasonable, are they still completely reasonable? Once the old choices are reconsidered, we can open ourselves to new decisions and new opportunities of a new day. I was at a conference... 15 years ago and the speaker talked about how he had just had he was in his late 50s and he had just had a heart attack a few years prior and he was trying to suddenly after the at the in his mid 50s 
take charge of his health. And he had never really been a person to eat right and exercise consistently. And he was talking about this, about how difficult it is to manage that decision and change that habit after so many years of not doing that. And it got him thinking as he was, and he had written some, something in a, in a book he had written on this, that to these first decisions, the decisions you make early enough are much easier to manage later on than the decisions that you never made until something happens and you're presented with a problem. So a good one is like, I'm not going to drink alcohol. Um, I'm smoking is another one, taking illegal drugs, all those decisions. If you can make those decisions as a child early enough, it makes it a lot easier to just say no later on. But if it's something you never really thought about, there's no big deal. Then it's a lot easier to just be tempted in the moment when somebody says, Hey, you want to try it? Oh, sure. Why not? You know, social, social pressure kicks in. We talk about that with, with, clients about how you need to stack the deck in your favor and make these decisions ahead of time. Listen, someday this is going to happen in the economy to your account, whatever. Here's what you need to be on the lookout for. When this happens, be ready. What decision will you make then? And if you can just start thinking for yourself a little bit in advance, you're more likely to make the rational decision because you made it at a time that it didn't matter. There's other advisors that have had, a, had that play a game. Well, they'll they'll have uh, clients write a letter to their future self, mm-hmm. and it says in like in case of emergency, break glass. It's an, it's a letter that says in a bear market. And it's in their own handwriting, and they write a letter to themselves. That's the rational person who's not caught in the moment, and then they they use that and they say, "Give this to me in the next bear market." And they read that letter to themselves, and they wrote it. The client wrote it, and they go. Oh yeah, I did read that. I guess I better, and it just improves the likelihood that they're going to make a, a good decision. Well, living within your means is one of our guidelines that we. It's a giant one, and it's being a saver. And to your point, getting back to what does that mean? Someone who has their first job and they're drunk on their own success, they get their first paycheck, and they're trying to figure out what kind of apartment and get everything their life set up, and if they make a hundred thousand dollars a year and then they set up their life and their lifestyle to be a hundred thousand dollars a year they're right off the bat they've they've neglected to include any component of savings and that can work against them looking into the future when they're 10 years later when they have a family and they're trying to figure out how to save for things if they've haven't been a saver Whereas if someone who starts out saying, hey, I'm going to try to live on half my salary well, they're in such a powerful position going into the future and at such an advantage over that other person. We see that all the time. Somebody makes, say, $100,000 and they don't save anything, but they think to themselves, but when I make $150,000, i will be putting that 50000 away. That never happens. No. No. No, it no, does not. Nobody does Unless that. you have set up that intelligent, rational first choice of saving that money. No matter how much you make, you're just going to continue to spend it because you're leveling up. They'll rationalize the you're, heck out of it. They're yeah. like, oh, look, I just, I just got a, a huge bonus. You know what we're going to do? We're going we're to blow that whole bonus on a, an awesome vacation for the family. Or And you rationalize. It's like, hey, this is, we're, we all deserve to benefit from all this. 
But the fact is, if you don't have that habit of saving 10, 15, 20% of your pre-tax income, odds are you're not going to be able to sustain that lifestyle later on when you stop working. You've oh. got to be saving no. 10, 15, 20% period. And you know what? If you got that huge bonus and you saved 10, 15, 20% of it, guess what? There's still money left over that you could spend on lifestyle after you save a portion of it. It's this idea. You got to save a portion of it. And if, if you don't make that decision early, boy, it's hard to set up. And then the communication when you have a family, husband and wife, if they're not on the same page and one person is trying to be a saver and the other is not, there's some real frictions there. And you, you really can paint yourself into a corner. You've, you've got these decisions that the decision was never made to be a saver. So now you are spending all your money. And the only way you can spend less money is to move and downsize or move to a community that no longer fits your identity. I have to live in XYZ zip code. Because it's who I am. I'm somebody that lives in wherever. But heaven forbid I move like two towns over where the schools are just as good, but the housing prices are a third less. And then I could actually be financially stable. No, I couldn't possibly make that decision. Because that it goes to what you were talking about, Tom, with the, your, with the condo. I don't want to downsize. That would mean I'm, I'm losing in life. Yeah. If I spend less on a house, even though you've painted yourself into a lifestyle you cannot afford, coming to terms with that is near impossible. So you've got to make get those first decisions right. Live within your means. The, the greatest correlation with happiness that Tom Stanley found among all people he interviewed, the high-income people, the millionaires, everything, was if you live in a house you can easily afford, you tend to be happier. Period. Oh, yeah. Not spending money and having cash always makes you kind of feel better. At least I do. It's just freedom. Oh, yeah. It's financial independence is an amazing thing. And later in the book, it even goes further and talk about how it feels having less, like leveling down or downsizing. So painful. It's like literally destroying you. A part of you is dying. It feels that horrible. That people will bankrupt themselves just to keep maintain the level they're at they're at. Even though they can't, they will destroy their whole entire lives to maintain it as long as they possibly can because d- downgrading is so painful. So the smart thing is just don't upgrade. <laughs> you can avoid it. Just sit tight. Don't buy anything that's ever out of your price range. When I bought a condo, I bought something that was like half of my price range because I knew that if you, you, you know, downsizing, if you ever go through a difficult time, it is incredibly painful and it might feel like you're a part of you is actually dying. This is what the book kind of describes as like a small death of yourself because you're losing the prestige of your life in the eyes of your and community. And it's that first decision. If you decide yeah. the prestige matters to you on the front end, you better reverse that course right away. And check that ego as soon as possible because after the longer it goes, the harder it's going to be. And on the flip side, I mean, just had just met a couple that they're an example of the opposite. This is a wonderful couple. I mean, this is this is not the 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 millionaire idea that you would think of, but he's in the trades. He's a blue collar guy, retired, and 
she spent her career working at a grocery store. They've never made a hundred thousand in their life. And these are the kinds of people that we find that have actually accumulated significant amounts of, of assets over time. They didn't spend all their money. It's a superpower. If you can do it on the front end and live within your means, it's just a superpower. We keep hitting this over and over and it's because it's simply the most controllable, biggest impact thing you can do in your financial life. Oh, yeah. I think in this may be shocking to people who aren't financial advisors. Some of our wealthiest clients are blue-collar workers. They're not the doctors and lawyers and you know the people you think have a lot of money. It is the guy that lives in the small house that has a ton of money that no one would ever even know he had a ton of money. Because he decided not to buy a lot of stuff and saved it, put it in, put it to work. And there's a misconception that some people will have. They'll look at that and go, yeah, but I want to at least have a life. These people live fulfilled lives. Oh, very happy. They're very happy. They're, they're not like starving themselves, living on rice and beans, driving. They're, they're, these are not like the absolute end of, this, of the frugality spectrum. These are people that live a full, happy life. They have do Christmas and gifts for their kids and grandkids. They're funding kids' educations. They're happy. They're not feeling like they lacked anything. They just didn't have a desire to drive a Ferrari. Or rather, they didn't have a desire to pay for that Ferrari. Right. They're like, ah, I'd rather not. Whatever. I'd rather spend time with my family. I'd rather take the family on that vacation. I'd rather just have security. And not only are they a lot of times happier than... A lot of the people are the, that are earning higher, far higher incomes because they're, they're, they're actually financially stable. They're, a lot of times you'll notice they're more worried about retirement. It's like, oh, will I have enough? Because they're, they're, they're almost savers to the point where it's, you know, well, not, I wouldn't say excessive, but big concern is being money in retirement. And they'll, ha- they'll, they'll be fine. Yeah. It's, they're the ones that usually have the surplus. It's the people that always that not drive up, that drive up and they, Generally speaking, anyway, the people that have the nicest clothes, the nicest car, and the nicest house, and the highest income, usually, as a percentage of their income, are saving less. Oh, yeah. As a percentage. And therefore, they're the ones that have to downsize in retirement. They're the ones that have to reduce their lifestyle simply because they can't afford it. And it, it, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a sad story because... They have every opportunity to do so, but it's a shame when somebody has a big income, two, three, four hundred thousand and up, and they're not on track to retire. It's just a shame. Oh, I I think if you looked at all, if you look at clients, regular people, even the the people that are making the mid three, mid six figures and up, are most likely the clients who are not prepared to retire. No, percentage wise. I would say the people who are making from 200 down are probably the most able to retire. That's what we've seen. That's, I, I wouldn't say 100% of the time, but it's, it's more than 50%, might be more than 70%. It's usually those people. A lot of that Social Security can supply a lot of their income because they're not spending much more than they would receive in Social Security. So it's not that, you know, but it's... Life that's choices. A, that's a life. That's a significant life choice. That that initial decision to save and not spend money compounds a long time. 
don't paint yourself into a corner. He talks here about supply and demand. Traditional economics assumes that prices of products are determined by a balance between two forces, supply, the production at each price, and demand, the desire of those with purchasing power at each price. Where these two forces meet is always the market price. These forces are independent from one another. But in reality, what consumers are willing to pay can be easily manipulated. And this means that consumers don't, in fact, have a good handle on their own preferences and prices they are willing to pay for different goods and experiences. So it reminds me of the story about Peloton, the stationary bicycles that have the video screens and they, they help you through workouts and stuff. They came out with those at a certain price point that where they could make a good profit and they weren't selling the way they thought they would. And what they were told is the price was too affordable in the eyes of their customer base. And they thought that the low price implied lower quality, even though it was the same product, they went ahead and raised their prices dramatically. And all of a sudden it's viewed as a premium product and people are like, Oh, it must be quality. And then sales took off. And we see the same thing in the financial world where we see it every time there's a bubble, every time there's an overvalued asset, people will overpay for an asset be simply because it's been going up. How many times have you heard that a a stock is very good because it's high priced? Every single time I get on Facebook in the last six months. That the the high price is what makes it worthwhile. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if they have no profits whatsoever, look at their market share. Right. The company itself could come out and say, listen, guys, we're overvalued. Or the company could make an announcement that says, hey, we're only expecting 5% growth in profits for the next decade. And they'll have it priced to assume 25% growth. That eventually corrects itself, eventually. Eventually. You know, all these errors do self-correct at some point. But again, bad behavior can go rewarded sometimes in the short run. And the short run isn't always a month. No. Short run can be several years. We have seen that happen. There were people in 1996 talking about how overvalued tech was. And it didn't peak till 2000, 99, 2000. It can go for a long time. And there's a lot of pressure to play along with that party. Yeah. Well, you're, you're lining up behind everyone else. But you're playing musical chairs. You're playing Jenga. And Absolutely. you don't want to be there when the tower falls or when the music stops. You want to have a chair at least. So you got to protect. We always talk about how risk matters. And where risk really hits people is when they make these psychological errors and they weren't thinking about risk. That's where these errors can really hit you hard. Or they misjudge how much risk they're willing to take. It's hard to, it's hard to measure, so people ignore it. It's easier to look at returns. It's easier to look at price. And he talked about this in the book earlier. It's, it's just easier to pay attention to the things that are right in front of you. And it's easier to pay attention to the things that all your friends are talking about, even if it's completely irrelevant. But that's, that's the whole point of all this is that we're not, whatever you think makes sense to you, double check, maybe ask someone that is not emotionally involved in that for like, Hey, it might be an irrational here. Sometimes you don't know what you don't know there. We've had several clients who come in, they think they're conservative or they don't really have an understanding of what risk is or, and they have a preconceived notion of what they think risk is in their investment portfolio. And then we review their their portfolio, we do a deep dive analysis 
and we demonstrate to them how aggressive their portfolio is and they just are floored and had no idea. Yeah, you're, you've, you've been driving 90 miles an hour and the roads have been clear and the weather's been good and you had no idea right. how fast you were driving. Remember that, old, that, 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 that nice car that I got rid of because it wasn't reliable? When that car went fast, you couldn't tell. It was well built. And so I get this phone call. My wife had used that car. She was on her way home and she, she calls me. She goes, okay, where's the cruise control? <laughs> why do you need what it's on the steering wheel there's a button there and she goes okay i found it thank you i go why just just curious why are you asking where the cruise control is she goes well i looked down i was doing 95 in a 55 and i didn't notice she didn't have any frame of reference i mean and where we live i mean everybody drives pretty fast in the first place and if but where there was no traffic around for that relativity she didn't even realize how much risk she was taking and she's like no, i'm gonna back that right off and we see it, it's it's common and there are no tools, getting back to the investment portfolios, there are very few tools, if any, available for the common person to actually try to identify how much risk they're taking in their accounts. I've been, I've really looked around. I'm, I'm having trouble finding a place for a do-it-yourself investor, for example, to find a way to measure accurately the amount of risk that's in a portfolio of a mixture of things. You can look up the risk of an individual investment. Which isn't all that helpful. No. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is people mischaracterizing how much risk they can take in a portfolio too. So the person who thinks they're aggressive, but a 10% downsize is 10% down is devastating to them. That would, they're not actually an aggressive investor, but in their mind that is aggressive mm -hmm. and they're told, Oh, buy stocks. You're aggressive. Oh, I'm aggressive. I can lose. I'm willing to lose 10%. And then the other thing that's another factor is, Asymmetrical risk aversion, which is one of my favorite <laughs> favorite phrases. Asymmetrical risk aversion. Risk aversion. So you hate losing more than you like winning. That is all that means. Is losing hurts way more than winning feels. For good. most people, I've seen research like that too. It's something like three times more pain. Uh, yeah. From a loss. Could, yeah. If I were to take five dollars from you, you'd be pretty upset. But if I would give you five dollars, you'd be like, eh. Thanks. Thanks. Whatever. Okay. Right. But you'd steal $5 from me. I wouldn't steal. i just take it. <laughs> <laughs> I just borrowed it indefinitely. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was an indefinite borrowing. But that's a big factor, too, is, is losing hurts a lot. So that's in, when you're talking about risk. That's a big factor to look at is... How painful is that going to be? It's going to be three. As, as excited as you are now about your returns, let's say since March 24 of 2020, everything's been going to the moon since you brand new started investing right at the bottom because you're just lucky and you were very aggressive. However good you feel, you'll feel three times worse if that turns around and goes, if that Jenga tower falls is what you're saying. Oh, yeah. I mean, you opened up a statement and you see your account, monitor account goes fifty to $25,000. That feels life-ending. It can. But account going from fifty to a hundred in a year, it feels good. But it doesn't feel as good. It doesn't feel nearly as good as you feel bad when you lose half of it. You just reminded me of something when you said statement. The definition of a bear market is a 20% is a decline from the peak, Correct. 
So the stocks, whatever the stock market is at, whatever if, if a stock market's dropped twenty percent, that's the official uh, approved definition of a bear market. This year in twenty twenty has caused me to, in my mind, I'll take a little issue with def- that particular definition, and the reason is, I don't think unless you receive three negative months in a row on your on your statements. I don't think you really emotionally feel like you had a bear market. We had a bear market that lasted all of three weeks. And then it was a very sharp recovery right thereafter. People maybe had one, maybe two statements that were down and they didn't even capture the bottom because March, there was such a big run up in the last week of March. I think you need to have to really appreciate what a bear market feels like and that decline and to experience the Jenga tower falling, I think it needs to last longer than one statement cycle. You need to have that feeling of, oh, dear Lord, again? Oh, wait, it's down again? Oh, it's down again? What is going on? And that's when the emotions have gotten triggered. In my experience in the dot-com bubble, that thing lasted from, depending on how you were invested, if you were in tech, it started in early in 2000, but... The S&P 500, I think, peaked in like the third or fourth quarter of 2000. But that went on until 2003. You had t- over two years of de- basically declines in people's accounts. And two years is a long time. Oh, yeah. And I'm hearing people saying that they're investing, quote, long term. And their idea of long term is anything longer than a month. Because they've only been investing for three or four months or five months, and they don't understand what long term even really is, and they've never experienced a down, a downstroke, that's in, of any significance that lasted a long time. Yeah, putting money into something that's going down is completely counterintuitive to human beings. Something that it went down in price, now it's on sale. Yeah, it's weird like that because if it's food, you're all in. It's on sale. If it's clothing, you're all in. If it's shoes, you're all in. If a car goes on sale and it's the same exact car that normally price cost $40,000 and you can get it for 30 or 10,000, you know, whatever cash back rebates or whatever, you're all in. But when it comes to those are consumables, but if it's something that's on piece of paper, you're like, I don't trust it quite as much, even though it's a real business that sells real band-aids or medicine or clothing or iPhones or computers or whatever it is, they're real businesses, but it's not real to you because you don't have it right there in your hand. What if you received a statement every month about the value of your car? <laughs> that would be a... Or your house. Or your, or your house or your, your washing machine. All those things that are de- depreciating. depreciating. It's depreciating. Right. You'd be pretty unhappy with those purchases too. Because... <laughs> <laughs> As you see, this is going down in value. But it, it, stock market is, I think, a little bit different. Is when it's going down, it, you don't think to yourself naturally, "Oh man, this is great." No, and and, the, and it's that it's that word "going" or "doing." We all are hardwired to use that present tense language because we used to go into a bank that was paying X percent. And you knew what you were going to get in advance. And the fact is, is that something just did well or just did poorly. And what it's going to do next, if it's the stock market, it's not really that knowable, at least not in the short run. Yeah, that's a... And so this idea of, oh, it's when everybody says something is doing well or something's going down, it means it went down. Right. 
And but we all use we're all we I use that language all the time. We're hard, it's like hardwired, and we're all hardwired to say it. But but the, the the that creates a psychological error. Oh, it's doing well. The logical leap is oh, it's going to keep doing well. Therefore, let me on that train. I want to make I want to ride that train too, just like my neighbor who just made whatever a hundred percent return in the last year on that one thing. I want a hundred percent return. If I buy what he bought after it's gone up and doubled in price, then obviously it's going to double in price for me. That is so irrational, but people go, I know it is, but I'm going to try it anyway. And that if they get rewarded, they're going to do it again. And again, eventually they get hit hard. It's just like gambling. If you win and win and win, you'd keep, you know, eventually the house is going to get you. How can we possibly be rational? We're, we're acting based on emotions all the time. And we don't even know what we don't know. We don't know how to figure out what this thing is actually worth, what the risk is for doing what we're doing. We're just jumping off the bridge and hope we. I don't think you can actually act rational. When your best bet is to plan ahead. You're probably going to act irrational a lot of time. So you have to go back and analyze and say, when you're separated from those emotions, was that actually a good decision? And then writing down in a rational state what you're going to do with investment policy statement. That's a huge one. How am I going to invest when I'm in a rational mindset? Mm-hmm. Am I going to chase after returns that are... That's... Yeah, you you got to plan ahead for things that may... If a bubble develops, here's how am I going to behave. If a bear market happens, here's how I'm going to behave. Now, rationally, you know that if you have a bear market that they all they tend to recover... And you want to take advantage of those bargains and all that. You don't want to be having that first conversation about those in the midst of it. In 2008, there were people who they panicked and got to, it was one of the best bargain opportunities ever. And they panicked and they went to cash at the bottom. Then they played the guessing game. Do I get back in now? Do I wait? Do I get back in now? Do I wait? They wait until they feel more comfortable. They wait until they feel more comfortable. When do we feel more comfortable? After the prices have already recovered and you missed out on the opportunity. Yeah. That's the, that's one of those uh, things we talk about a lot in the office is the difference between market returns and investor returns. And they're not the same. People. They could be. They could be, but mostly they're not. Because people are, they may be invested over a 30-year time horizon, but they're not invested in the same position or the stock market that whole time. They're making irrational decisions throughout that by buying high and selling low, it's a significant reduction in the actual return is yeah, from what people get a, from the market. A, an extreme example, I just saw an article yesterday, it was about, or maybe a couple days ago, but it was, it was about Amazon.com stock. In December of 1999, Amazon stock peaked at $113 a share. And in the next 18 months or so, it dropped to $5.51. How many people sold it when I went to $5? A 95% drop in the value of a stock. How many people are really going to hold on to that? Now, keep in mind, it hasn't split, and now it's $3,000 a share. It's 30 times what it was in 1999. But how many people could tolerate a 95% drop? And then it recovered by like 2007 to a peak of like 105. It was still down from 1999. So six years later, no, Eight years later, it was still not where it had peaked. So you've had this thing for eight years. It went down 95%. It came back up huge. And 
it's now 105 and you're thinking, eh, do I want to hold this? I mean, is it really going anywhere? I mean, and then the 2008 financial crisis hit. Everybody dumps all their stocks and it went down another 65% from the 105. And only in the last 12 years or so has it finally gone from wherever, you know, in the 30s or wherever it was up to 3,000. It's 10 times what it was a decade ago. But that's a heck of a journey over a 20-year period. And you say, hey, stay invested for 20 years and the odds are probably with you in all, in all likelihood. Never mind that there were hundreds of companies that went completely belly up in that dot-com disaster. And we talked about some of those in the other episode. But you're right. I don't think people in reality have the intestinal fortitude to handle that level of risk. And that's why we focus on risk so much. It, you need to have something that is comfortable enough that you're going to stick with it. Otherwise, you're going to panic or do, make some horrible decision. Yeah, because if you couldn't handle a 95% reduction, you didn't get that 1,000% return. You lost a lot of money. Yeah, because you would have sold. You would have sold. If you can't handle a 95% return, maybe you didn't lose 95% of it because you sold it halfway down. But when, when did you get back in? Did you really buy so back? Did you ever buy back in? Did you buy back at five? Eh, some people might claim they did that, and some people maybe did do that. Should, there are people out there that have done it. Is that skill or just luck? Or you know, were they systematically purchasing something did they have rules-based situations where you know they buy x amount of the stock at at every month wait they had pre-planned their strategy it's a crazy idea and perhaps have a system interesting yeah (laughs) so jumping back into the book there's this interesting chapter here on the cost of free why do we have an irrational urge to jump for a free item, even when we know it's not what we really want? I believe the answer is this. Most transactions have an upside and a downside, but when something is free, we forget the downside. Free, with an exclamation point here, gives us an emotional charge that we perceive about the, what is being offered as immensely more valuable than it really is. Why? I think it's because humans are intrinsically afraid of loss. The real allure to free is tied to this fear. There's no visible possibility of loss when we choose a free item. When we pay, regardless of the amount of money, we feel some psychological pain, which social scientists call the pain of paying. It turns out that the pain of paying has two interesting features. First, and most obviously, When we pay nothing, we don't feel any pain of pain. Second, and less obvious, the pain of paying is relatively insensitive to the amount we pay. This means that while we feel more pain of pain as the bill increases, every additional dollar on the bill pains us less. We call this diminishing sensitivity. So the idea being, If it's free, no pain. If you pay anything, there's pain. But then if you pay a little more, it's not that much more pain. So if it's like 10% more you pay, you don't feel 10% more pain. Right. And there's all types of free, kind of free lunches in the world that aren't free. (laughs) They're costing you something. Time. Future expenses. There's 
Not- There's things that are harder to measure. It's the things people don't measure. If you have access to social media for free to share all your details of your life, they're making a profit somewhere. Where do you think that profit's coming from? When you had television broadcast into your home over the air for free. What? Broadcast <laughs> information for free over radio or television. You're having you listen to those commercials. You're susceptible to those marketing messages. There's a cost. Oh, there's a substantial cost. There's a cost there. I think the one he talks about in the book was credit cards. There's Credit card has no fee to use it. <laughs> right. Does have really high interest rate. So is it really free when you forget to make a payment or uh, couldn't quite make it this month? And, you know, you have 20, 30 percent interest. Was that actually a free credit card? No. Well, I can tell you there's a cost. Be- there's a cost somewhere because when I go to some places now, like my mechanic, he goes, hey, the cost is this if you pay by card. But it's like 10 percent less if you'll just write me a check. Because they get charged so much now from their their credit card processing oh, company, yeah. so they, yeah, they nothing's free. People are making money one way or the other, um, but there's 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 always an, there's this assumption of of free. Some examples that I was I could think of is is this idea of that that healthcare most a lot of employee benefit plans had incredibly good and affordable insurance, or it was subsidized so heavily by the employer. That your health insurance to you, the employee, was very reasonable for your health insurance. You go to the doctor, it's like five bucks, ten bucks, twenty bucks, no big deal. Oh, you're gonna go to the ER? Oh, it's only twenty bucks. So you, people would go and go and go, and they just go to the doctor a lot because it's, it's only five, ten bucks, ten, twenty bucks, whatever it is. That copayment's easy. Yes. Next thing you know, everybody's taxing the system, and guess what happens? There's a huge demand for those services, and when you have a huge demand for those services, the prices went up. And then eventually, the employers couldn't subsidize it. The cost got up so much, employers couldn't subsidize those prices. And so what they do? They said, oh, now your share is more. Now if you go to the ER, it's different insurance. Now if you want to go to the ER, it's going to be $500 plus. You might have an out-of-pocket maximum of $3,000, $5,000, $10,000. There's some people thinking twice about going to the ER. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely uh that's definitely a cost was of, it free uh, guess not? what it, it was free in the moment but after a while with all of us changing our behavior around that the cost eventually caught up and now we have and that's not the only factor obviously I and mean, please forgive me if you work if you're a physician if you're a work for a health insurance organization if you nurse <laughs> pardon nurse if you're a nurse I'm not accusing you of being an evil person. It's just that the cost of healthcare did go up and part of it could have played into people were going to the doctor a lot more often when it's only 20 bucks. But if you have to, I mean, I know for me, when I had to think about 500 to 1000 to $3,000 to go get something done, I did think twice about it when my insurance wasn't as good. Stuff catches up to you. In the book, he has a fun example. <laughs> It's, you can edit that out if we want. <laughs> there, it, it was tr- um, lint truffles, piece yes. of chocolate. Yeah, L I N D T. L I N D T. Yeah, they're expensive chocolates, but they're good. They're great chocolates. That was free product placement, by the way. <laughs> and Hershey's Kisses. So he charged ten cents 
for the lint chocolates and one cent for the Hershey's. That's a really good deal for the lint chocolates. Most people actually went and bought the lint chocolates. Hmm. Then he reduced each one by a penny. The ki- the kisses were now free. The kisses are now free. The lint chocolate is now 14 cents. Better deal. Hardly anyone bought the lint chocolate for 14 cents. Because it's free. Because there's a Hershey's kiss for free. There's no... There's no room for that that paying of money. There's no pain. So obviously you you'd get the Hershey's kiss. It's free. Why wouldn't you? Even though you'd be probably happier spending fourteen cents and getting you know a fifty cent chocolate. You're actually getting more utility uh, out of it. But that's a that's just kind of one of those things. And it's something to look for. Every time there's something for free, is it actually free? Are you actually going to be happy with that free thing? Heck, how many times have you got a timeshare offer? Somebody's getting a timeshare offer. Oh, come for a free buffet and a seminar. We'll fly you somewhere and you can stay for two days. A free vacation. I've seen these in the mail. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is not a that, free that vacation. That is not a free vacation. That is time that you're going to have to spend listening to somebody selling you something. And then for a portion of those people, it's even more expensive because now they have a timeshare they didn't even want before they left. Most of them will probably regret it for the rest of their life because those things, how many clients have you had that had a timeshare that are very unhappy with it and don't want to pay there's the a large, expenses? There's large databases of people that would like to get the heck out of those things. Yeah, so th- Tough contracts, some of them. There's... Free lunches uh, for seniors for investments. We see that. Yep. The free chicken dinner or lunch. That's not always free. But it's Morton's. Let's go get a steak at Morton's. I mean, what 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 could go wrong? You could end up buying something that's com- you know into a, some investment plan. Or God not forbid, even something invest- compl- some investment that something's completely inappropriate for you. Oh yeah. Potentially. I mean, could there's be. some good people out there too. There's good advisors out oh, there that do that. I'm but- not saying all advisors do that are. Bad or anything. There's not a bad marketing scheme. But there are people who are going to that who are, they might even be enticed to a, a product that marginally fits them, mm-hmm. but might not be the best decision. But because they went to that free lunch, they're, you know, they might feel some obligation. We saw that a lot earlier in our careers when vendors in the brokerage business, when we were commission based. There was a lot of money spent by vendors, mutual fund companies, insurance companies, annuity companies, to take brokers and representatives on trips, not vacation trips, but they'd, they'd fly you out to some place that was pretty or, or a resort or a nice hotel and put you in t- give you a nice couple of days in the city, and you'd spend a good chunk of that time in meetings hearing their sales pitch. But they, they always, they never took you to like the basic Holiday Inn Express hotel. It was always someplace oceanside, really nice, really nice, and then steak dinners, and then is it right? It might have been free to you, but now are you psychologically? Do you feel like you owe them something? There lies business? the conflict of interest. Yeah. Huge conflict of interest. So that that's that's one that's probably free to the advisor, not free to the client. And, and well, yeah. and 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 you do you 
you do end up paying for it if it was something that maybe wasn't the best thing. Yeah. Unhappy you clients. Gotta be, you got to be aware of that. You got to be very, very cautious. If something looks too good to be true, it probably is. And if you, the question I ask myself is, if if they're spending thousands of dollars to fly all these advisors out just to talk to them, how much money are they making on this deal? What are the expenses of this program? <laughs> we, we we've seen that with a we went to a uh, investment groups uh, their their building to show us and it was an elaborate office. We wonder where are all the expenses for this fund going to build out this multi million dollar office that they're renting thanks i'll take a pass but that's that's i mean (laughs) hard pass on that one part of that i mean part of that is actual due diligence that a proper advisor and fiduciary needs to be doing you want to get in there and get your roll up your sleeves and understand what's going on with that company if you're considering putting your client's hard-earned money into something but that was one of those situations where we would not have known had we not gone oh no it was worthwhile going but that one was the furthest thing from like some resort location. We were just at a basic hotel meeting center yeah. in, the, in in their offices. But you learn a lot. Yeah, no, due diligence are good. Situations. What you want to watch out for is those conflicts of interest where somebody gets something for, quote, for free, and then you feel obligated in some way. Yeah. How many offers you get? Oh, come to this due diligence. You can bring your wife. Right. That Then you feel a little bit of obligation. Is you have to remain rational and detached, which uh, who knows if that's possible. And what's fortunately what's happened is a lot of that's gone away. Oh yeah, to, that's... to a great extent. At least at least since we've been, you know, since we switched over the platform years ago to be more fee based, you just see a lot less of that kind of thing. Absolutely. being offered. And I don't think they like our questions. We can we, we ask, get in trouble. We ask hard questions. <laughs> we get in trouble. He talks here about the problem of procrastination and self-control. And we touched on some of this earlier, but he says we have problems with self-control related to immediate and delayed gratification. Boy, that's the truth. I want to have it now. I don't want to wait. No doubt there. But each problem we face has potential self-control mechanisms as well. If we can't save from our paycheck, we can take advantage of our employer's automatic deduction program, for example. So this goes to stacking the deck in your favor. Oh, you have problem disciplining yourself? Well, set up a system that automates it, and now it's disciplined. You've made the decision in advance, and now you set it and forget it, and you're going to be better off than if you have to say, oh, I'll save. It's, it's what you were talking about earlier. I'm making 100000 now. I'm spending all 100000 I'll save when, the, when I make 150. You, not if you're not saving now. That's what you were talking about, Dan. Yeah. In the moment we're weak, we're stronger at home. Um, for me, this is true when I go to the when I'm in the kitchen. If it's in the house, I'm eating it. <laughs> if it's junk food, pop, beer, whatever it is. If there's something, you know, where you just have that craving at some time in between meals or whatever, if it's available and it's in the house, I'm probably going to go ahead and have some of that. But if it's not in the house yet, I'm probably not going to get in the car and drive somewhere to get that thing. I'm less likely. Oh, yeah. 
That's so, a lot of effort, but if it's there. So the, the, the strategy that we fail horribly at at my household is the strategy would be don't even buy it at the store because you're much more disciplined in the aisle of the store on a full stomach than when you're at home with an empty stomach. But we fail miserably at that. But that's the idea anyway. You want to stack the deck in your favor if you can and, and make those decisions in advance. Automate things. Decide ahead of time what's going on. Create a plan and stick to it. It's a big one. Yeah, you have control. You can take control of your situation. The high price of ownership. He talks about an endowment effect. Is we predicted that when we own something, whether it's a car or a violin, a cat or a basketball ticket, we begin to value it more than other people do. There's an old saying, quote, one man's ceiling is another man's floor, end quote. Well, when you're the owner, you are the ceiling. When you're the buyer, you're at the floor. We still believe that in, the, in general, the ownership of something increases its value in the owner's eyes. We see people fall in love with their own and their investments they've owned for a long time. All the time. Or possessions. Or they'll get an emotional attachment to something of sentimental value that is a token. It's like it could be a it could be a, a newspaper that's an old newspaper sitting on the cabinet. Somebody could have an emotional attachment because there's a memory attached to it. And it's just an old newspaper. Or a really horribly like awful cheap piece of furniture that is meaningless, but there's a memory attached to it. Yeah. You endow the objects with value through time and memories. My car is kind of a piece of junk at this point. I looked at the, you know, trading it in and saw that I would get near nothing, but I will tell you that car is worth a lot of money. Because I've put 150,000 miles on it, and it's still doing really good. It's a special car. (laughs) (laughs) It's special because it's lasted this long? It is special. It's an enduring car. It fits me just right. That car is special. I love that car. No one else loves that car. They see the rust spots on it. They see a little crack in the windshield. It goes on Chicago highways quite a bit. sees the wear and tear. But I see it. I see... An amazing vehicle that stood up to the test of time. It should be honored for its service. <laughs> and I, I do not think it's worth $500. <laughs> I, I will tell you as a trade-in, I want to get like six. But it is nowhere near that. But I firmly believe that someone should pay me that for the honor of driving this car. Because <laughs> I've... How many miles? 150,000 miles with the car. I've, been, I've <laughs> imbued it with special characteristics that uh, I can only see. So, I mean, this happens with everything. You see this with houses. There's when people are trying to, you know, sell their house. Obviously it's my house is worth a lot more because this is where little Jimmy scraped his knee for the first time. This is where we had Christmas. Those things somehow in your mind affect it. It's kind of amazing. And you see in the stock market too, if you own a stock, you feel like that stock special. It's a weird thing. It's like, yeah, it's, it's weird because people will have an aversion to loss an aversion to a negative return on their investments. For example, a decline in value. They'll have an aversion to that, that you talked about where there's a pain of that going down in value, but there's another sense of loss involved in these, these possessions that people have where it's like, Hey, I'm, 
you know, he says here in the book, he says, the aversion to loss is a strong emotion. We taught, we established that already. As soon as we begin thinking about giving up our valued possessions, and in this case, I'll say that fund that you've owned for 10, 20 years, that stock that you inherited from Uncle Albert 45 years ago. That stock that you did all that research for the, and the, decided that was the winner. Right. That that one that you bought once upon a time and you decided it was the winner and, and maybe even now it's down in value. When it comes time to sell that or to replace or improve that because maybe it's way too risky for your risk tolerance now. Maybe you need to diversify. Maybe you need to improve your situation. Maybe that company is no longer a viable company. Yes. Maybe it's time. It's time to get out of that. But thing. my dad said, never, never sell, sell that stock. Right. And, and we hear that a lot. It's like, he told me it was his dying words. Never sell the GE stock. For example, general electrics down 90% from 20 years ago. There was a time when I could, I could, I, I understand. I mean, there was a time when it was the apple of its day. And or the Tesla of its day, only with profits. I mean, the thing was a awesome business in the nineties. It's down ninety percent for the last twenty years. I mean, come on. There was a point when it kind of made sense. Maybe diversified. Don't have all your eggs in one basket or whatever. But people are very hesitant to sell something that they've owned a long time. And not just for tax comp, not tax reasons. Yeah, it may be a completely emotional thing. So just be aware. Emotions will matter in your finances more than you think they will. Even if it goes counter to what makes sense for you financially, you may still make a decision that's not the optimal decision. Like the, like the premise of the book, you may be irrational in your thinking and it may make complete sense to you. There's this, there's this idea of the sunk cost fallacy. I've, I invested, we, we've had this happen before. Somebody has less than 1% of their money in one investment. And that one investment that they pick, maybe it's a stock, for example, is down. And it's it's not going to affect their financial future really at all. It's a tiny little bit of their portfolio, but it's down in value. And we say, why don't you just dump it? I can't dump it. I can't I, dump it. And make a loss. I can't, I can't sell because it's down. I'd, I'd have a loss. I can't sell at a loss. I've got to keep it until... And then what that becomes is the thorn in the side. It becomes the distract the detractor from every other potential conversation you can have to add value to your financial plan. Because every time you look at your portfolio, all you want to think about is that one little thing worth a few hundred dollars. And it's good to hold on to stocks for the long run, but it's, but it's important when a company is no longer viable. Yeah, or, or aren't going to be competitive, or things have changed in your portfolio. Or if you there's ten thousand things that are better opportunities for you, right? You 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 don't necessarily just sit on something, and it's okay sometimes to dump something that's no longer viable. Or if there's better alternatives out there. Question we'd ask people years ago would be, Hey, if you had all this money in cash, would you still buy this as it is now? No, no way. Then why do you own it now? Because what? I've always owned it. And therein yeah. lies the problem, right? So that you you got to be aware of these kind of things. And then you you, you just have this it's irrationality just, is real. You see people, it a lot, I think, too, with a stock for a company they worked at, too. Or somebody worked. 
there's like a tie, especially a job somebody liked. Mm-hmm. You know, they worked for a company for 30 years and they loved that company and they had friends and memories there. And when they worked there, it was the best company in the world. So they're tied to that stock. Mm-hmm. It might be a really big percentage of their portfolio. And they're like, well, this is worth more. I know because I've worked there. This company's the best. Could be 10 years from now. Nobody you knew worked there anymore. How do you even know this is a good company? But I think I've mentioned this on the, on, the, on the podcast before, but I had a client who was a, an airline pilot in the late 90s for United Airlines. And United Airlines had was a publicly traded company. They had this wonderful employee stock ownership plan. And this gentleman had, gosh, I want to think it was like 80 to 90% of his net worth was in that stock. And he believed in the company because he knew all those people. They're all good people. And it's a great business. I mean, there's, there's real airplanes there. The people are coming and going. I mean, I've been around the company for years. I spent my whole career here, just like your car. And he really believed in it. And that stock went from $90 a share or something like that, if memory serves me, down to below five. And he had over a million dollars in this stock. And he didn't protect his profits. And he wrote it all the way down. He lost 95% of his money or 90% of his money within a couple of years. Around retirement time too. Right around retirement. And it's just, it's a shame, but. Might be recoverable if he did that when he was 20. I know, right? But gosh, you got to pay attention to risk. It even it doesn't mean that that everybody who's twenty five needs to be conservative. That statement doesn't mean pay attention to risk. Don't take any risk. It just means hey, be aware of the odds. Be aware of the probabilities. Understand if, the risk you're taking. Understand the risk you're taking. We have younger people that have much more risk than people that are 80, 90 years old that work with us. People in their twenties can afford in certain accounts with certain goals. They can afford to take that volatility. In, in some cases, it may benefit them if they're contributing on a regular basis. That may help them. They're buying, they have opportunities to buy at lower prices when you have bad markets. But if you're 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, it becomes very, very real. You just need to pay attention to that. You were talking about your United Airlines makes me think of a whole class of employee, of customers, clients that we work with, entrepreneurs, business owners. They have if not all their net worth, but a ton of it tied up in their businesses. And when they have more money, they want to plow it back in because when they look at historical stock market returns and that sort of thing, they say, eh, I can do better in my business. So I keep on plowing money into my business. And we say, hey, you got to start diversifying away from your business. And that doesn't make sense because, well, wait, I can make more money by just plowing it back into my business. And you, as the advisor, is telling me to put your money somewhere where you're not going to get as much of a return. Maybe you make 15, 20, 25% on your money in your business, and you're wondering, why would I invest in something that maybe earns 5 to 10% over a long period of time? Right. And you have a situation like that, and uh, they're just not aware of the risk of owning a business. Their business could go away tomorrow. But they believe in it. They built it. Right. They're it's emotionally... With, it's imbued with special powers. And it's worth billions of dollars. And it, you, you, I, I have yet to see somebody sell their business for what they thought it was worth. 
at the end of their at the end of their business. I've never I have not seen too many people that have really sold their business for what they actually thought it was worth. It's almost always less. I would agree with that, and I think the book agrees with that. <laughs> <laughs> Talks about in there. Your their selling price is the ceiling. <laughs> that's right. So you know, and somebody and the buyer is the floor, right? And the buyer's like, yeah, why would I? I don't see it. I don't see it. You know, so the, the, the point is ownership just simply changes our perspective, he says. Suddenly moving backwards in our to our pre-ownership state is a loss, one that we cannot abide. And so when moving up in life, we indulge ourselves with the fantasy that we can always ratchet ourselves back if need be. But in reality, we can't. This is what you were talking about earlier, Tom. Yeah, I alluded to this. Downgrading to a smaller home, for instance, is experienced as a loss. And it is psychologically painful, and we are willing to make all kinds of sacrifices in order to avoid such losses, even if, in this case, the monthly mortgage sinks our ship. So define loss. I lost that thing that I've been attached to, or I've lost everything. Stack the deck in your favor. Have that conversation with yourself in advance so that you make better decisions in the future. It's just all about thinking about these things before they happen. Planning ahead. Yeah, I think... uh important point is that if you this is not so much on the markets but just a big part of financial planning isn't the stock markets it's not your portfolio it's everything else it's controllables yeah big controllable is how much you spend i know we already hit on this but i think it's worth it's huge really this is like a big stressor if you can afford a five hundred thousand dollar house easily doesn't mean you should buy a five hundred thousand dollar house especially if the banker tells you you can afford a house at a certain level don't ever trust that but (laughs) even if you could actually afford it doesn't mean you should buy it just because you can afford something doesn't mean you need it or should buy it because you don't know what the future holds that's a big risk assuming that you will always be better one year from now might be generally true but we saw the middle class in america hasn't really been better off every year we've been Real wage growth hasn't happened really for a long time. Yeah, gr- uh, wages really have barely kept up with inflation, if that. Right. So, buying a house in 1970 for you know the highest that, you know you could mm-hmm. expect, which your highest level of affording something might 30 years in 2000. You know, you might not have actually been better off in 2000. You're not always going to be better in the future. It's just something to look at. To think about because I think most people are optimistic. Nobody's well, not nobody. I guess there's some well, people. Well, everybody wants to be the cool, optimistic person. It's part of their identity. It's like, hey, I don't want to be that person. Why are you such a wet blanket, telling me I need to worry about stuff? Why are you being so difficult? Just be, just be relaxed, dude. Everything's gonna be fine. Everything's gonna work out. I want to be that relaxed, chill person that really is not worried because it's cool to not be worried about stuff. The problem is. In order to have that feeling with any foundation, you need to have planned for things that might happen. And then you can be chill and relax and everything. But if you're just like flying naked and pretending that everything will be okay and you're not prepared, good luck. That's a dangerous place. Very dangerous. And there's a lot of people out there. Was it a thousand, three hundred dollar unexpected expense could destroy a lot of people's lives he he talks about here you know, think about it don't you feel you're a better than average driver you're more likely to be able to afford retirement or 
likely, less likely to suffer from high cholesterol, less likely to get a divorce or get a parking ticket. This is called positivity bias. We were talking about, you want to be that cool person that's relaxed and, and an optimistic. And there is a, there is a social pull to be the optimist person. And over long periods of time, I got to tell you, I'm pretty optimistic about the world over long periods of time. I'll tell you, being the pessimistic is not the most fun. It is less fun. And, but there is, there is the fact that things in the short term can be challenging. And you just need to be aware that risks do exist in life on this earth and you want to plan and prepare for them and you want to focus on controllables for sure. And you want to be as rational as you possibly can. And remember probabilities. Statistics. You are, in some cases, just a number. Just you with the cholesterol. Right. A certain percentage of people are going to have high cholesterol. You have... You know, depending on health factor stuff, but there's a there's that percent kind of chance that you're going to be one of those people that have high cholesterol. There's as horrible as this sounds, you're not all that special. There's you're, well, it's just that there's a small probability, and it's larger than people think. But there's a there's a small probability that you could be disabled and not be able to do your job anymore. That'll never happen to me, Brian. Of course not. But that's one of those, and I, I, I talked to the, and, and there's a small probability that you might die prematurely. We've had that hit us in our personal lives. People live their lives based on probability of how probable is that thing that's going to happen. And then a lot of folks will make the mistake of ignoring a low probability thing that might have a very large impact. And discounting the probability of that low probability and they, yeah, they, they get it down to zero. They're like, ah, whatever. That'll never happen to me. So I'm not going to, and I, I talked to my kids about this is like, Hey, don't live your life. Like plan a is always the way it's going to work out. No plan survives contact with reality. The military says no plan survives contact with the enemy. You have this great plan. And then the enemy gets a vote and goes, Oh, I got to adjust, right? You need to have flexible plans. You need to have contingencies for if this, then that I'm covered for these kind of things. And a rational person looks at that and thinks in advance before they go into quote battle for lack of a better analogy, you want to have plan a plan B plan C. What happens if this happens, if that happens, if the other happens, we know what our goal is in the end, but you better have a path and multiple paths to get you there because the fed the markets, viruses, they all get a vote. And you don't get to control those things. So you've got to focus on the controllables. And some of those controllables involve planning for things that you think maybe wouldn't be that pleasant. Disability, premature death, long-term care needs, extended elder care. What if, what if, what if? And plan around those things as well as try to get the most return on your investments. Because... Honestly, over a 20-year period, investing in this investment versus another investment isn't going to make that big of an impact on you or your family's life. But it's planning for those contingencies. Because you know what? Like you said, Tom, odds are something's going to happen. Yeah. of You see it a lot more as an advisor because you have a lot of clients that one of them is going to have something that premature death. So you're more adamant that somebody needs to get life insurance. Your client, say it's like a 30-year-old client. 
I said, you know, you really need life insurance. You you've got a, you've got a spouse and three kids. You ought to have a will. You ought to have some life insurance. Absolutely. And a lot of times the response is, I'm not going to die. I'm 30 years old. Do you know the odds of me dying? Yeah. You know the impact is on your family if <laughs> you die? It's not really great, but if it does happen, it's pretty bad. And somebody with the age of 30 is going to die. <laughs> it's, in the in the United States, there are 30-year-olds dying. So it's not... It happens. I mean, it happens. And, and, you have to prefer for it. Yeah, so just, just, just to recap, I mean, we, human beings are in the moment very likely to be swayed and irrational to be irrational yep and not even know it and the way you want to combat that is number one you want to plan ahead you want to have contingency plans you want to be aware and just step back away and look around at your decisions and ask yourself did that make sense and if you're not sure ask somebody else who's not emotionally involved in that decision to give you their read on it. Preferably somebody that actually has lots and lots of experience in that type of decision-making. So stack the deck in your favor. Don't be irrational. You're going to be irrational, but do your best to not be irrational. Just understand it. Understand the irrationality. Yeah. And if you don't understand, ask questions. Again, predictably irrational by Dan Ariely. Tom, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it was great. That's a good book. It's a good book. Highly recommend reading. Everybody else, thank you so very much for listening. I neglected our normal housekeeping on the front end, so I'll give it to you now. Nothing in this podcast should be deemed personal financial planning or investment advice for you. For that, you need to seek out properly licensed and registered experts in that field. Uh, but again, thank you again for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. Please share the podcast if you find value in it. And if you need to get in touch with us, we're at Fierce Fiduciary on most social media. I'm at Brian C. Beasley on almost all social media. Dan, you're on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, Dan Alberth. We would very much like to hear from you. We also administer a private group on Facebook called Investing in Financial Planning for Beginners. Please feel to check in. feel free to check in with us there. Our firm is Athena Private Wealth, if you want to try to reach us that way. Yes, we do do this for a living. Glad to help you. Until next time. Cue the tiger.